On this episode, I'm in the room with Levi Lusco discussing his new book, Through the Eyes of a Lion. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 43. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so visit my blog at ryanhugley.com, that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y, to find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Each week, I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations, so I end up talking with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. This week, I'm privileged to be in the room with Levi Lusco, pastor of Fresh Life Church in Montana and the author of a powerful new book called Through the Eyes of a Lion, Facing Impossible Pain, Finding Incredible Power. In my conversation with Levi, we discuss everything from cultivating leadership culture and creative communication to how he and his family have endured the unexpected death of their young daughter. We had a great conversation, and I want to invite you to listen in. So come on in the room for my chat with Levi Lusco. Levi, thank you so much for coming on in the room. I want to make sure that everybody knows this is now the second time that you've done this as we had audio issues the first time. So thank you very much. We'll go all the way back to the beginning and uh, excited to talk to you about Through the Eyes of a Lion. I know that book's been a blessing to many, including me. But if we could start at the beginning for people who don't know you, can you start by telling me a little bit about just the story of how you came to faith, what kind of house you grew up in, Christian home, non-Christian home? Let's just start at the beginning. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. Uh, my whole life, I just knew about God, about Jesus. I grew up in a, an amazing Christian home, actually. Um, but there came a place in my life where I was living a lie. I was I would go to church, uh, but throughout the rest of the week and on my own time, I was very much uh, not honoring God, not living for Him, and I was miserable. You know, I, as the adage goes, had enough truth in me to not be able to enjoy sinning, but enough sin in me not to be able to enjoy the truth. Right. And so I was kind of, kind of a wreck all the time. And uh, that kind of came to a head my freshman year in high school when I uh, made a decision to just give my life to Jesus in response to uh, just the conviction of the Holy Spirit and just sensing uh, God calling me and pursuing me to a relationship with Him. All right. So I know enough about your story to know that you did end up in ministry. You were doing ministry at a sizable church, teaching pastor at a church in California. So that's a gig that like 99% of pastors would kill for. And so tell me about how a California kid ends up planting a church in Montana of all places. Yeah. So, I mean, it was literally my dream job. I was a teaching pastor at a church. My wife and I had one child and uh, we were just very happy. Um, I was putting on weight from all the In-N-Out burgers, <laughs> yeah. going to Disneyland all the time. Uh, but I just felt like I almost had it too good to be true in the sense that, and I don't believe, I'm not like a sadomasochist, like I believe you have to suffer or anything like that, but but I just felt like I was missing out on the difficult entrepreneurial days that you know are so important to developing the muscles of the soul that you'll need down the road to have integrity. That's good. You know, you think about David. Um, he was anointed as king, but then he went through those difficult years in the cave. And Saul never had to go through that. Saul pretty much just went from looking for donkeys one day to on the throne. Yeah. And I feel like some of that um, could be explained by the the lack of time being forged. You know, so often God calls a man or woman and then sends him off into the desert to prepare him. And 
I felt like to, to, to some extent I didn't have that period. And so uh, whether or not that was all me just hearing God or whatever, I I felt like I needed to, to step out and do something difficult. So that led me to look for kind of what might God have next. And I, I planted the church in Montana almost nine years ago. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because um, so many people get stuck in a decision like that and, and really kind of stuck in that cycle of trying to figure out like, what is God's will for my life type thing. And I like the way you talk about that a little bit in, uh, in the book, but uh, from the outside looking in, that decision made absolutely no sense. And so tell me a bit about what, what it was like to face that decision and how did you go about discerning God's will in the midst of that? Yeah, it was kind of a, a nightmare, you know, because as soon as I decided, I think I'm going to leave this church where I was the teaching pastor and um, and do something else, and, and I, I was really thinking about planting. And I had a couple different cities that maybe I had planted in. It wasn't just like California is awesome, so Montana, I have to go there because it's terrible. That wasn't right. at all it. It was more just like, I feel like I need a step of faith, and it could be maybe a, tr- a new church plant in California. Um, but as soon as I began to even think about other options, it was like options came out of nowhere. I mean, people started offering me jobs and things. And then it was like, I, I went from having not enough options to like way too many. And uh, and then everyone wanted to speak into it. You know, once I announced I was going to plant a church and, and people started coming out, like to tell me, this is not God's will for your life and crazy stuff like that. And at, at the end of the day, we never heard an audible voice. Uh, the wisest thing someone told me, Pastor Chuck Smith, I went to see him. He, he's now in heaven. But he, he said at the time, um, people need Jesus everywhere. So it doesn't really matter. Just go somewhere and do it. You know, it's like, and that, that kind of was so freeing to look at it like, you know, at the end of the day, God's word is alive. Everybody needs Jesus. And it doesn't really matter where you go. It's, it's more about who you're becoming than what you're doing in any given moment, I think. That's really good. Well, for those that know your story, we all know kind of how it turned out. Fresh Life has become a, a thriving multi-site church blowing up across Monta- Montana. And I, I wonder what are some of the unique aspects of Fresh Life's culture? Because I think one of the things that anybody that's followed your guy's story, you guys have a distinct culture. And so what, what would you say are some of the unique aspects, just one or two of Fresh Life's culture? Sure. Well, one thing we say is that we're a youth-led movement. We're not a church with a youth group. We're a church that's trying to call out an under-challenged generation to take their place and change the world. So, like, we don't have a group of students that are, like, being groomed of the, as the church of tomorrow. If you come to our church, you would notice, like, there are old people just as valued and honored as anybody, but young people have a, a thriving presence on platform, serving in roles all around the church. And um, we um, want them to do the same things anybody else does. So like for us in our church, to the benchmarks are of course like giving, serving, small groups. Well, that's the same thing for a student. We want them coming on the weekends, serving on the weekends in a small group and on a team and then giving. So that's one thing. Another thing would be that we do more by doing less. We don't have a women's ministry, men's ministry, a potluck on Thursday. Like we only have a few things we're doing and we try and do them really well. And we've kind of killed sacred cows. Like, oh, the church has to have this. Well, no, we don't. Like that's not in the book of Acts. All, All we're supposed to do is teach Jesus how we execute it is up to us. And so anyhow, those are a few things that are unique, but um, I think it's just really, we found our sound and not worn David, uh, not worn Saul's armor where we're supposed to use a slingshot. Sure. 
So what, as a leader, what are some of the things that you've been intentional about just trying to cultivate that strong or organizational culture? Cause that's something that gets away from so many leaders in so many different spheres and vocations. So what are some things that you're mindful about or ways or systems that you use to go about reinforcing this culture that you've tried to create? That's a great question. Um, you know, the thing is, is to do it frequently, do it incessantly, do it clearly, because uh, you, you should never communicate to where you're trying to be understood, but to where it's impossible to be misunderstood. That's good. And, and you have to remember, most people come to church one to two times a month. So if, if you have Vision Sunday once a year, like, just know that the great majority of your church, A, isn't even there that week, yep. <laughs> B... Uh, heard it once and was probably on their phone when you said it. So like you have to communicate so often that it's like almost to an excess. And, uh, and then for us, we have once a month staff rallies where it's just vision, vision, vision. We have uh, campus uh, specific um, team nights six times a year in each campus. And it's, it's just vision, vision, vision. And then we have a, a class where you have to go to before you can serve where it's all about why we do stuff, not just what. I think it's a detriment to have anyone in any role doing a what without the why. Good. Absolutely. Well, I know Jesus said that he would build his church. We all know that. We believe that. And I also know that he uses us to do that. And so, um, what are some things that you guys have done that you think has really made a big impact in the growth of the church that the rest of us could learn from? Well, um, I think... uh, evangelism is huge. I think, you know, giving an invitation at every, like for us, there's not a Sunday where we don't cast that net. Like only God can save people. Sure. But Jesus, you know, said, go out into the world, preach the gospel. And so I think not just teaching to the saved, but teaching to the lost, like giving a message at the end and on ramp for salvation. When people know every weekend, there's an expectation that we're giving a a message for the lost in the service somewhere. Um, they'll, they'll bring their friends. If, if nothing else, I heard one pastor say, someone from his church came up and said, I started bringing unbelievers just because I felt so uncomfortable for you getting an invitation, no one responding. (laughs) He's like, Hey, whatever, whatever it takes. That's right. I think that's one thing. I think, um, uh, you know, from from the very beginning, we never let excuses like we what we don't we never let what we didn't have keep us from doing something we felt called to do. Like if you feel like oh we'll get innovative once we have money or once we have this, it's like you, it's like romance. Romance works on any budget. Take yep. your wife to Costco, walk around, get samples. It, it, if you are waiting to have some dream team in place to then we'll start doing this, you have to start. Greatness starts on a small scale and then you keep going. It doesn't all of a sudden one day kick in once you get a million dollars. That's good. That's good. Well, one of the things I know that's made a massive impact uh, is the way that God has used you as a faithful and specifically as a creative communicator. And I know that almost anyone can be creative once, but sustained creativity takes systems. And so I'm wondering how you go about pursuing consistent creativity as a preacher and a communicator. Um, I think organization is the biggest thing. Um, behind me is a whiteboard where I'm always, I have a couple whiteboards and I can write on my glass. My desk is glass. I can always be writing on it. Um, then I keep Evernote folders uh, yep. for all future series. I keep uh, always a moleskin somewhere full of what's coming up with the next stuff. And I think uh, you, you, generally the best ideas come when you're not working on that specific project. It's in the margin, the margins of your life. So if you're always like in the gym today, 
I'll think of something. Oh, that could work in this series. You just jot it down because you th- you'll think you'll remember it, but you won't. You won't, yeah, unless you jot it down. And I think giving your team, you know, if you're going to call your team on Friday at 4 p.m. with a great idea for the weekend, just know the execution's not going to be as good as if you gave them two weeks. Like, hey, for this series in the fall, I'm thinking. So you just have to work a little bit ahead of time. And it's like, well, no, the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, well, yeah. the Holy Spirit also is outside of time, so He can That's work right. with you today for next month. You know? Yeah, and your team hates you. <clears throat> when you call on Friday at four as well. <laughs> if, if you do that as the exception, that's fine. If you yeah. do that as the rule and you want them, and then you're pissed when the delivery is, I don't know if I can say piss on this podcast. You're totally if, you're deli- if you're upset because the delivery is not what you wish it was, uh, then, then you, just, you have only yourself to blame. That's right. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit. I could talk to you about that all day, but I want to talk about through the eyes of a lion. And uh, so for people that uh, I know a lot of people are really anticipating getting to hear you speak about this uh, on this episode as they've read the book. But for someone who's not read the book, tell me a little bit about really the tragic circumstances that led to the writing of it, if you could. Sure. So uh, my family uh, is my wife, Jenny, my oldest daughter, Olivia, then Linia, my second born, then Daisy, then Clover. So all girls, yep. my wife, four daughters. I like to say that I'm a minority in a sorority. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, so uh, about 1,020 days ago, uh, December 20th, 2012, my second born daughter, Linia, had an asthma attack five days before Christmas. Uh, my wife and I were wrapping Christmas presents, and uh, when my, my we went then we went to go pick them up uh, from uh, my my mother-in-law's house. And uh, w- right when we got there to pick them up, Linia was having an asthma attack. Uh, we tried to give her her medicine, her inhaler, her, neb- her neb- albuterol, and it wasn't working. And pretty soon, uh, her heart stopped beating, and uh, right there, um, she she went to heaven just like that. And, uh, we, of course, we called 911. I did CPR till they got there. Uh, we were taken to a hospital where they tried to resuscitate her, and all their attempts at, uh, at that were unsuccessful. And so they told us right then and there, just out of like with no time to even say goodbye, uh, there's nothing more we can do. And now all of a sudden, um, we're living in the middle of you know your worst nightmare as a parent. Yeah, I can't imagine. You call grief, uh, which has got to be one of the most dominant emotions that you guys have, have experienced in the last couple of years. In the book, you call grief an endurance sport. Uh, and I'm curious about what it's looked like for you guys to endure that tragic personally. And then maybe even as a husband and dad, what it's looked like. How, how do you, when you're like trying not to die on your own, how do you lead your wife and, and daughters through that? Because life doesn't stop for them. You know, Christmas still came five days later for your yeah. other girls. How have you done that personally? And how, how has that looked for you as a husband and dad? Well, I won't sugarcoat it or try and tell you, oh, well, you know, we weren't sad because she's in heaven or uh, it was hard, but she she's in a better place. Like, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, it was it was really brutal. And there were um, there were days when I wasn't so sure I would be able to make it. There were times, you know, just I mean, it's the most overwhelming physical thing you can go through. I, I don't know anything other than being high or being drunk that would so alter your physical state. Um, when you're in the midst of grief, it's like your stomach is in a constant free fall and your skin flushes. Um, my, I was crying so much. My contact lenses were fogging up. I couldn't wear my contacts. I couldn't eat. Um, I, it was, um, 
is panicky feeling just constantly. It was, it was really hard. I mean, and I had never gone through anything like that. And, um, and, and that was, um, days and days of that nightmare, you know, um, but at the same time, and it's hard to believe that as bad as that is could be the same true with, with what I'm about to say. But at the same time, we felt peace and we felt anchored and we felt um, buoyed by the, the strength of God in us. Mm-hmm. And we felt like there was a, 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 a quiet voice whispering that it was going to be all right, even when everything else was tearing off the walls around us. So we simultaneously had, had, had this barbaric horror we're feeling but then just at the same time a strength from within and and i don't know how those are both true at the same time but they were and uh the only thing i can say is that god chose to pick the anchor analogy in hebrews 6 19 for a reason Mm -hmm. because a boat that's anchored is still getting hit by every wave and the wind is still whipping across the top of it but it just doesn't move it's still there after the storm right and our anchor doesn't give us immunity from the storm it's not a cloaking device or it's not a a time machine or television Portation device, the anchor just keeps us in the midst of the storm that we still feel. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In the Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates. But here's what's great for In the Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help, and now back to the conversation. You do something interesting and refreshing in the book. I saw the collision of two seemingly unrelated topics. Uh, You talk a lot about the God-given potential that exists inside of every person. I feel like I've seen that in some books. And then you talk about the reality of suffering, which I've seen in a separate set of books. But you put these two topics together. And so I wonder if you could flesh out a little bit how those two things are related and what's the connection between those two things. Well, the subtitle of the book is... um, Facing impossible pain, and that's what you mentioned there, yeah. suffering, and finding incredible power. And, and those, I believe, are two sides of the same coin yeah. that is our calling. Because if you look at it, like all over the Bible, you have Jesus saying, um, you know, in this world you're going to have tribulation, there's sorrow, uh, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, right? And as I, so have, just as I've done, so you can do kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. The world hated me. They're going to hate you. Um, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So same thing. Then you have Paul who said, uh, was told after his conversion, you know, you're going to preach to kings, the Gentiles, and the nation of Israel, and you will suffer many things for my name's sake. I believe those two are the same, one and the same. For it is as we go through difficulty that God unlocks massive opportunity. If Paul hadn't been shipwrecked, stoned, beaten with rods, lied about, forsaken, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to preach to kings, Gentiles, and the nation of Israel. 
Right. And just as just as as, as we face the difficulties we do, I believe that it, through those things, just like a, a an olive is crushed to release the precious olive oil that is the anointing, I believe that as we're crushed, the crushing unlocks the anointing for the ways that God wants to use us, both in us as He purifies us and through us as the difficulty gives us opportunity. That's good. I'm curious though because some there are so many people where the type of tragedy that you guys have walked through crushes them. You know, like books don't come out of it, sermons don't come out of it, ministry doesn't come out of it. It just shipwrecks, train wrecks their entire life. And so, what do you think are some of the factors because you have to be talking to so many people about this now. What are some factors that you see in people that don't that God doesn't use that, it's not even that, not that God doesn't, but that their misery does not result in ministry the way that it has for you. Are there any commonalities that you see amongst people where it's like, it ruins them. It doesn't, it doesn't take them forward the way that it has you guys. Well, I, I don't know. I, I get uh, the grace of God is all I can point to, except to say that, that, like you said earlier, God does it, but he uses people. Yeah. Um, when I look back examining, like even the night when she went to heaven. Okay. So there we're in the ER and there were in the, you know, you can't, you can't think about what to do. You just act, you know? Yeah. And what we did was we dropped to our knees beside the bed and we grabbed, my wife and I, we each grabbed her hands and I closed her eyes and, um, we raised our other hand to the heavens and we said, um, we dedicated Linya to you when she was born. We said, she's yours and we dedicate her back to you now. Mm-hmm. And so we bless your name and we, we worshiped and it was the closest, I guess you could come to the Holy of Holies I've ever felt, you know, like here, a part of me as a dad is in this world and now she's out of this world. Mm-hmm. And it was like my heart, part of my heart went to heaven. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, but then as I look back and go, okay, how did I know how to do that? What made me do that? Mm-hmm. And all I can think is Sunday, uh, four days before or five days before, we were as a family in church, and we raised our hands to the heavens, and we worshiped. And the Sunday before that, and the Sunday before that, and we brought our tithe every Sunday and brought it to the house. And Jesus said, where your treasure goes, there your heart goes. Yep. And so all I can think is that by doing those things in, 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 as a part of the rhythm of my life, I was, even though I didn't know it, in training for a trial I wasn't yet in. Yeah, And I see um, marriages fall apart all the time when their kids die. And I wonder if it's just not that a weak marriage was exposed because trials, Jesus said, reveal foundations. They're not the cause of the lack of a foundation. Yeah, that's good. I think we get so, so many times when you have the privilege of talking to someone like you that's been through a tragedy like this. Everybody wants to know, <clears throat> what did you guys do after the fact? What'd you do after the fact? What'd you do after the fact? And uh, what you're saying is it's really the things that did bef- you did before that led to the fruit after, which I just think is so significant and so often overlooked. Um, so what would you say to someone who is right now on the verge, maybe, of throwing in the towel? similar to what you've gone through, maybe a completely different trial that they're facing right now, but they're just right on the verge thinking, you know what? I, I don't, I don't feel anchored right now. I don't know that I want to go on. What do you say to them? Well, I'd say, first of all, you're going to get through this if you just keep moving. Yeah. Um, I live in Montana where every year people die of uh, hypothermia. They get either their, their car breaks down or they get lost uh, skiing in the back country and they die. They freeze to death. 
And what I've read about hyperthermia is at a certain point, your body tells you you should lie down and go to sleep. And the worst thing you can do is to stop moving because you'll start freezing. So I would say grief is like that. Uh, everything inside of you will say, pull the covers over your head, drink a bottle of wine, take a Xanax and forget this. And I would say to you, get up, wash your face, um, uh, go to church, get into your small group, all the things you don't feel like doing, open up, but no one knows the right thing to say. There isn't a right thing to say. Yeah. Nothing can, nothing can make that no word someone can say will ever bring your child back or your marriage back or your home back that you foreclosed or your job back that you lost. So just get up and keep moving. And, and if you keep moving, you're going to get through this. It won't always hurt like it hurts right now. Yes, it hurts like hell today. It'll hurt a tiny bit less tomorrow. And if you let Jesus coat this with his grace, the same irritant that so bothers the oyster can eventually become a pearl. But if you keep it hidden and you won't let Jesus get to it, it will become an abscess. Mm-hmm. But one way or another, 20 years from now or 30 years from now, this grief is going to come out. Grief has to come out. So instead of running from it, what I say in the book is run toward the roar. Yeah. Face your fears, uh, and, uh, and, and victory comes when you, when you approach the things that you feel least like doing. Yeah, that's good, man. I would say to someone they should read your book. That would be my, my two cents because it's a tremendous blessing. Hey, b- before we close, man, I want to shift a little bit. Every week I've been trying to ask some kind of more random, not necessarily related, but more rapid fire questions. Not rapid fire that you have to answer them quickly, but um, just kind of standalone questions. Uh, so if I want to ask you a couple of those. So first, what, and this is a really, the really hard one I know, but uh, outside the Bible, what book has made the greatest impact in your life personally? Well, early on, I would say, um, this is random, but A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. Okay. He talks about, um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the David and Saul and how David didn't kill Saul when he had the chance. Yeah. And I think it's pretty cool, um, this concept of, he, he's basically saying in the book, you can't get over what God wants to have under you until yeah. you can get under what God wants over you. That's so good. And, and David not killing Saul when he had the chance, but honoring, even though he was a bad boss. Like, and yeah. so maybe someone listening to this, maybe your senior pastor is not doing a great job preaching or leading yeah. or whatever, and you have a hundred ideas that aren't being listened to, yeah. and, and you could easily become an Absalom and, and whisper to people in the church, yeah, you know, I, I think what you think is valid. And, and, and I think all you're going to do is sabotage your future because, you, yes, maybe your idea is better, but by you honoring the authority you're under, it will one day set you up to be over what God wants to put under you. That's good. That was a huge thing for me to get through early on. Yeah, totally. Uh, what would you say is the most difficult part of your job? Um, I think... Um, the leadership development is the most difficult. I think um, I am most gifted at preaching. And though it's certainly hard work that at least I enjoy the process. Yeah. Um, Because I am an entrepreneurial onto the next idea thing. um, If I'm not careful, I will not invest in those under me and raise up new people and help. I will, I will um, rely on those who are the most gifted and neglect the opportunity to build up those who are uh, struggling in this, in the season they're in. And, but, but um, the power of our organization is not going to be a few people doing what they do well, but all, everyone doing what they're called to do well. That's good. What's something uh, 
that you'd like to see more of in the church these days? Big C church. I would say, um, I'd say more aggressive, tenacious, standing up for what Jesus is doing, less nitpicking um, other religions, even other parts of Christianity and focusing on what's wrong yeah. um, and more just standing up for what we, I mean, I, I think we can so easily be known for what we're against rather than known for what we're for, mm-hmm. you know, going back to when I was first in getting into ministry, you hear these boycotting Abercrombie and Fitch boycotting boy. And it's like, when are we going to realize the world is the world and they're not going to not be the world, but instead win them with the love of Jesus, you know? Right. Totally. What's a per- who's a person in your life that's made the greatest impact on you? Pastor Greg Laurie, a huge impact. Uh, just uh, 35 years proclaiming the simple gospel message. Never, I mean, his hair has changed, style's changed, <laughs> but here he is about to go to AT&T Stadium in Dallas yeah. at 60 years old, running a 100,000-seat venue to, to proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then personally, he walked me through my daughter dying, and I got to walk him through his son dying. So we have a real beautiful relationship that I'm so thankful for. How did that relationship come to be? Um, through uh, me being friends with his son, who, oh, okay. who's now in heaven. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, he had gone through a real difficult season with drugs and kind of similar to my testimony. And yeah. we became friends after he got straight with the Lord. And, um, and then he was taken to heaven pretty quickly after that. Yeah. All right. Last question. What did you, would you say that your and I know there's no ideal most of the time, but what does your ideal week look like? You know, you're you're writing books and you're doing interviews like this and you're still preaching and pastoring and leading your church. So what is the ideal? How do you kind of structure to get your sermon prep in, to get your writing in? What does the ideal look for you? Yeah. So, um, um, I uh, take Friday off, Friday's family day. Okay. That's a big day for us. Yeah. Um, I like to go into the weekend rested. I, like, I know a lot of guys take Monday off, but uh, I, I just as soon get right back into it as opposed to Me too. Uh, try and have my family time on a day when I'm grumpy because I didn't preach well or attendance right. was down. You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so uh, I t- Monday, um, I get right back into it. I, I go to the gym first right away. First thing in the morning, I like to, to get exercise in. Otherwise it won't happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm usually up by five 30 out at the gym at six 45, a couple of guys in the church I work out with. Then, um, I give my freshest time to sermon prep cause that's my most important responsibility. So yep. before my mind is run down with details and administrative stuff and you know, why the church isn't clean. I like to just go straight into prep and I do that till about lunch, a little bit after that. Then maybe I'll, uh, I'll work on some, uh, blogs or any writing. Uh, right now it's, 1230. And that's why I'm doing this interview now, as opposed to 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, then after this, I'll head into the office. Um, and most afternoons, if I'm going to go into the church office, I study at home. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, I'll spend, uh, two to four or, or two to five in meetings today. Okay. It's a creative meeting, um, an admin meeting, a meeting with my two assistants just on scheduling. And then I'm going to record a video that's going to be used at a conference that I can't go to, but they're going to show a video. That'll be a five. So that's just kind of but roughly two to five is whatever needs to happen at church. Okay. And morning time is, uh, is sermon prep till, till lunchtime. Okay. And that's my usual schedule, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Oh, it is. Uh, okay. Except, yeah. Except Mondays. I also, um, I, after I get back from the gym, I don't go straight to prep. I usually spend that time um, listening to a few podcasts from the weekend. 
to sort of fill back my tank up and listen to other people preach. Listen to, I'll go listen to a few messages and just kind of, kind of re- refill my spirit, you know? All right. Well, on that note, yeah. last question, who are some of your favorite preachers that you listen to then on Mondays? Yeah. I always catch pastor Greg. I love pastor Stephen Furtick. Yeah. Um, I love Pastor James McDonald. I know a mutual friend. Yeah. Uh, Louis Giglio is a baller. That he totally is, is, man. Um, and then I, I really like Pastor John Gray. He's a teaching pastor uh, at, uh, at Lakewood Church okay. in uh, Houston. Okay. And he is, he is one of the funniest communicators. And he's a little bit uh, different stylistically. So I like that, just stretching the sure. borders. And, yeah. and anyhow, so uh, those are a few of the guys I listen to regularly. Um, I like Alistair Begg. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind of my diet right now. That's good, man. Well, thank you again, first of all, for doing this twice. Uh, and then secondly, thank you so much for the book. And uh, I'm really thankful that you guys didn't give up in the midst of all that you faced, because uh, God's using it to bless so many. Just in putting a picture up on Instagram of the book and talking about our interview, so many people that I've talked to have been so blessed by the book. So I'm sure that you know this, but know that you're making a tremendous impact in the midst of allowing the Lord to use your pain. So I'm so thankful for you and uh, have learned a lot. So thanks again for your time. Ryan, thank you for having me on. I appreciate your heart. My thanks to Levi for taking time to chat twice, as you heard. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. As always, I hope you found it helpful. Don't forget that you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the ways that we can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.